The scripture reading today The scripture reading today is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. Jesus and his disciples came to the other side of the lake, to the region of the Gerasenes. As soon as Jesus got out of the boat, a man possessed by an evil spirit came out of the tombs. This man lived among the tombs, and no one was ever strong enough to restrain him, even with a chain. He had been secured many times with leg irons and chains, but he broke the chains and smashed the leg irons. No one was tough enough to control him. Night and day in the tombs and the hills, he would howl and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from far away, he ran and knelt before him, shouting, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. He said this because Jesus had already commanded him, Unclean spirit, come out of the man. Jesus asked him, What is your name? He responded, Legion is my name, because we are many. They pleaded with Jesus not to send them out of that region. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the hillside. Send us into the pigs, they begged. Let us go into the pigs. Jesus gave them permission. So the unclean spirits left the man and went into the pigs. Then the herd of about 2,000 pigs rushed down the cliff cliff into the lake and drowned. Those who tended the pigs ran away and told the story in the city and in the countryside. People came to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the man who used to be demon-possessed. They saw the very man who had been filled with many demons sitting there fully dressed and completely sane, and they were filled with awe. Those who had actually seen what had happened to the demon-possessed man told the others about the pigs. Then they pleaded with Jesus to leave their region. While he was climbing into the boat, the one who had been demon-possessed pleaded with Jesus to let him come along as one of his disciples. But Jesus wouldn't allow it. Go home to your own people, Jesus said, and tell them what the Lord has done for you and how he has shown you mercy. The man went away and began to proclaim in the ten cities all that Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed. The word of the Lord. Take a moment now for silent reflection. morning friends. My name is Emily McKinley and I have the great joy of serving as your senior pastor here at City Church. If you talk about me you can use the pronouns she, her, and hers. Let us pray. God we are grateful for the gift to come together to incline our hearts and our minds in your direction and maybe catch a little bit of what it is that you're wanting to do within us, around us. And so I ask that as I speak that you would get me out of the way. Uh, that you would clear away those things that clutter our hearts and our minds so that we can be fully present for what it is 
that you are wanting to speak into our lives today. We pray all this with gratitude and in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the last four weeks, we've been visiting some key locations in the ministry of Jesus. This is where I get to pull out those old Bible maps. I think I've done that like three times in my entire 10 years of ministry. Starting in the ministry, or starting in the wilderness, I'm sorry, um, where Jesus experienced profound disorientation and clarity. It's that kind of top, uh, where is it? Oh, nope. Uh, to the, that second from the top on the left, um, that's where the, uh, that pink dot there where Jesus experienced profound disorientation and clarity. Then we moved to the Sea of Galilee and waded into the water with Jesus, who found friends and partners for his work. On to Sychar and Samaria, where generational wounds were tended and a new future was cracked open. And then last week in Judea, where Jesus and Joshua, wherever he is, uh, reminded us, everyone, um, that the quality of our faith is measured by how much we are willing to slow down and see one another. Each message, each story, ended with a sense of increase, of a kind of spiritual generosity. Today, though, today we are confronted with something else entirely. Our passage tells us that Jesus had crossed to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which might seem negligible if you don't remember that water is a natural border and that the Jordan River flows out from the Sea of Galilee, extending that border, creating a demarcation that is more than geographic. Unless you know the area, you might not realize that up until this point, Jesus has generally stayed on a kind of north-south track up and down the inland edge of the Mediterranean coast where Jewish presence is the majority. In our story today, Jesus crosses that border and heads into what most scholars agree is a city called Gadara, one of the 10 cities that make up the Decapolis. And this is all worth knowing for two reasons. First, the Decapolis was considered the center of Hellenistic culture, a blend of literature, art, and philosophy whose roots were in classical Greek, but then heavily influenced by Persia, India, and Egypt. In other words, it was a cosmopolitan and culturally influential area. The second reason is that while the 10 cities were generally given autonomy to govern themselves, they still existed under Roman rule and occupation. And that means military presence, urban planning, and ultimate institutional authority not only governed the details of their days, but also shaped their imaginations. They may have been cosmopolitan, but they still had one person's face on their money, one person's insignia on all weaponry, and one person's name signed on legal pronouncements. Before Michelle Yeoh, it was Caesar, who was everything, everywhere, all at once. <laughs> so there are two things that the Decapolis signifies to anyone hearing this story about Jesus back in the day, cultural influence and Roman imperialism. But for any Jew listening to this story, what they hear above all is this, Gentiles, tombs, and pigs. So many pigs. Which is another way of saying unclean, impure, and defiled. Even for us, it's a difficult story to hear. Even if you're not Jewish or clued into any of the cues of the narrative, the circumstances themselves describe a community in spiritual and emotional chaos. Everyone is in pain. There's the so-called, so-described demon-possessed man who was a terror to himself and to others, unable to control himself, chained, tormented, and self-tortured. 
There's the community, not knowing what to do, stuck in a kind of decision-making paralysis, not wanting to be harmed by him, but reluctant to kill him, and having lived through seemingly endless cycles of torment, punishment, banishment. Everyone is stuck in a loop of spiritual chaos, emotional weariness, and civic anguish. The man, the community, everyone is out of ideas, out of energy, and out of hope. And so when Jesus shows up, we, the readers of the Gospels, the one who have been traveling with Jesus through the ups and downs of his ministry, who have seen his intentions and his character, we think that this is going to be another beautiful story of restoration. Instead, what we find is this wild man rushing toward Jesus, ankles and wrists deformed by the shackles that he has broken time and time again, unkept, unbathed, and unhinged, rushing and falling to his knees because all that is within him can recognize a power that is greater than any of the many which war within him. And the first words out of his mouth reveal his only experience of authority and power. Swear that you won't torture me. Survival is a step up from the place to which this man has found himself. What Jesus doesn't do, at least initially, is wield the power that he has. And by that, what I mean is, is that Jesus doesn't say, that's right, you better be afraid. He doesn't even tell him, no, no, I'm cool, I'm not that kind of God. No, Jesus doesn't come at this man as an authority, yet another someone who has the power to put him back in chains in shackles, someone who can banish him against his will to dwell among the dead in their tombs. Instead, Jesus asks him a question. What is your name? And I can't help but wonder, how long had it been since someone asked this man his name? It must have been a very long time, because the only name he gives is a name which speaks to the multitudes of violence within him. My name is Legion, which is Kind of a wicked name, right? Among Roman military standards at full strength, a legion consisted of 6,000 infantry, 120 cavalry, and associated auxiliaries. A legion is not just a battalion. It is a system of interlocking strategies, meticulously planned, assembled, and orchestrated, and set in motion for the dual purposes of domination and oppression. This is what lives within him. Yesterday at our prayer walk in the Excelsior, we heard about the many and varied ways in which geopolitical conflicts, immigration laws, and the daily struggle for stability amidst wildly unstable circumstances intersect in the bodies of mothers, uncles, nephews, granddaughters, and even toddlers who are expected to stand trial on their own behalf. The source of their pain is multitude. Is it displacement or paramilitary conscription? Abuse or the twisted, hope-filled abandonment of your children at the border of a country slightly less hostile than your own. Even among our group, Adrian invited us to share the stories of our family's migrations. Nearly each one, my own included, and we even heard a little bit in Lucia, was rooted in some form of political or economic instability. I could go on. I could tell the story of a student arrested by Immigration and Customs Enforcement and their school's coordinated efforts to prove their innocence. I could talk about one of our own community members here at City Church, whose mother sent him to Atlanta to live with family he never met so that he could avoid being enlisted in the paramilitary of his home country. 
By twists and turns, he ended up here in San Francisco, where the ministries and resources of City Hope offered him a second chance. There are many stories, legions of them. But this story isn't so much about legions as it is about the man and the community that suffered under his torment. When Jesus speaks with the man, or rather the spirits within the man, they beg him to let him stay, let them stay in the region. And it seems a curious thing to me that Jesus would honor this request, but it's in his action where we grasp the severity of this man's torment. Those spirits, enough to drive 2,000 pigs to their death. That man was capable of holding all of them within himself without getting completely destroyed. This man is strong, incredibly powerful, terrifying in his brokenness. But strangely enough, his liberation stirs up another kind of terror. The people come to see and they are amazed at how normal the man has become. But then something else occurred. Those who saw what had happened told the others about the pigs. And then everyone pleaded with Jesus to leave. If something so miraculous had happened, why would they ask Jesus to leave? Well, here's what I think. When Jesus sent those demons into the pig, at first I sort of felt bad for the pigs, right? <laughs> I mean, what did they do to deserve that kind of treatment? But then you have to put on your cultural lens. For observant Jews, pigs are incredibly unclean. And so if you have to send unclean spirits somewhere, it makes sense that you would send them into an unclean animal. So that's one thing. But there's another. Those 2,000 pigs belong to someone. And a quick delve into the business of animal husbandry and pig farming tells me that an average pig is $584. 2,000 pigs are a loss of about $1.2 million. And so maybe the reason they didn't want Jesus to stick around is because, frankly, it costs too much. If someone's healing costs us that much, maybe it's just better to let them suffer. Or maybe they're thinking, we've already suffered enough trying to manage this man over the years. Why should we have to endure more loss? Or perhaps it wasn't ideal, right? But it was working well enough, and the fallout of having to navigate the change, even a good kind of change, just isn't worth it. Regardless of their reasoning, they didn't want to have to deal with any more healing that Jesus might bring. It just costs too much. For anyone who has been touched by addiction in one form or another, you are likely to have a sense of its effects. As a child, I knew it like a house guest who decided to stay without permission. It sounds like the crack of cans methodically emptying a 12-pack of tall boys while the blue light of television flickers in a dim room. It smells like the yeastiness of a goodnight kiss. It tastes like dinner alone at the kitchen counter. It looks like emptiness, even if the house is full. And it feels like confusion, disorientation, and spiritual absence. Waking up in the middle of the night and wandering the house in your footed pajamas, wondering where your parent disappeared to, only to realize it was to go out for more beer. Now, I can't speak to the other side, but this is how San Franciscan author Anne Lamott put it. I was 32. There were three published books and the huge local love of my family and lifelong friends. I was loved out of all sense of proportion. I gave talks and readings that hundreds of people came to. I won a Guggenheim Fellowship, although like many fabulous writers, I was drunk as a skunk every day. I was penniless and bulimic, but adorable and cherished. But there was one tiny problem. 
I was dying. Oh, also, my soul was rotted out from mental illness and physical abuse. My insides felt like Swiss cheese until I had that first cool, refreshing drink. So, not ideal. The elevator was going. It only goes down until you finally get off. As a clean, sober junkie told me weeks later, at the end, I was deteriorating faster than I could lower my standards. And against all odds, I picked up the 200-pound phone and called the same sober alky that my older brother had called two years earlier when he hit his coked-out bottom. The man, a Jack Lemon type, said, I will come get you at 11.30. Take a shower and try not to drink till then. The shower is optional. I didn't. When all else fails, follow instructions. I couldn't imagine that there was a way out of all that sickness and self-will, all those lies and secrets, but God always makes a way out of no way. Not all chains are on the outside. And you can howl all night while dwelling among some caves and tombs for quite a long time before anyone notices. When the people tell Jesus he's no longer welcome, he heads back to his boat. And the once wild man asks Jesus if he can come with him. No, Jesus says. Go home to your own people. Tell them what the Lord has done for you and how he has shown you mercy. The people said go, and Jesus said stay. Someone has to know what is possible. That the end of the line doesn't have to be end of the line, be the end of the line. After all, someone was on the other end of the line when that sober alky that Anne called picked up their own 200-pound phone. It cost her something to stop drinking. I'm sure of it. Maybe her writing got worse for a while because her muse in a bottle couldn't join her in the prose. She was no longer adorable and cherished. I could imagine that her Swiss cheese insides started showing up on the outside, which is never a good look. She lost her professional momentum. Her publisher lost sales. Her acquaintances no longer knew a rising star. It cost me something to forgive. I had to cut my losses and let go of anger, deal with abandonment issues, take a deep breath and say I love you without resentment. But that's when you, what you do when you finally tell Jesus your name and you let him break your chains once and for all. And you discover that like the art of Kintsuki, Jesus can make even our ugliest, most broken parts beautiful in their own way if we let him a brokenness that is not shameful, but rather a river of demarcation from who we once were to who we now are, where light might reflect a peculiar kind of grace bright enough to catch the eye of someone who had given themselves up for gone. Let us pray. God, we thank you that you make beautiful things out of our broken parts, that when everyone else is at a loss for what to do with us, you know exactly what to do. And it's not to fix us, it's to ask us our name and help us remember who we are. And so help us to be the kind of people before we try to control others or even ourselves, to see each other, to help us see ourselves and find a way forward no matter what it costs. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.